Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Right Where You're Sitting Now. I'm your host, Joshua Lee, and you'll notice that the effervescent Ken Eakins is not sitting next to me. Uh, that's because his microphone pooped out on him right before the interview. <laughs> or so he says. Uh, I don't, I'm not really sure. We've been communicating through text only, and I can't really tell if he's lying, because uh, I can't see his eyes. So we'll have to, we'll have to wait to see. <laughs> uh, this episode, though, we are talking to Julian Vane. He's a psychonaut, an author, and a leading voice in the chaos magic tradition. I don't know if tradition's the right word for it. It's not, uh, it's not especially old. Oh, maybe it is especially old now. For sure there's some listeners listening that are younger than... That's depressing. That makes me very old, too. Uh, uh, Julian uh, is the host of a YouTube show called My Magical Thing. Uh, it's really fun. Worth a watch. He's also one of the head writers of the blog of Baphomet. In this episode, we talk about chaos magic a little bit, uh, and we talk a lot about psychedelics and their place in a magical practice and their place in society as a whole. Ken, if you're out there listening, we missed you. <laughs> we love you. We hope you come back safe and sound soon. <laughs> uh, Julian Vane, everybody. Welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, today we've got Julian Vane with us. Julian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. It's good to see you. Um, for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, could you kind of fill them in and let them know uh, why you're here? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a big existential question to which I haven't got a good answer. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I'm Julian Vane. I'm a I'm an occultist and I'm a writer. Um, I've got a background in uh, Wicca and kind of neo-paganism um i've got uh connections with you know tantra and various other kind of magical disciplines but i suppose people mostly know my work in the context of chaos magic uh so i've written loads of stuff over the years you know i'm, I'm involved quite a lot with the psychedelic community these days uh so i'm involved with the organization breaking convention which is a big psychedelics conference happens every couple of years and um uh, pandemic permitting will be happening uh, in the University of Greenwich next year. So yeah, kind of that's me. Chaos magic, psychedelics, drugs, bit of sex. Fantastic. A bit of sex. <laughs> um, uh, you do a lot of online classes, right? Especially now, I guess, right? Uh, can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I've been, I've been very fortunate over a number of years to be working with uh, Treadwell's Books, which is this brilliant... Uh, esoteric bookshop in London and certainly since the pandemic I've been doing a lot of kind of online uh, uh, courses with people range of different stuff from kind of you know cleansing banishing and centering uh, uh, workshops with people who want to learn about those kind of areas through to I think the most recent ones were one on Baphomet uh, one on chaos witchcraft uh, some some tantra stuff some, which has gone down like really really well Obviously, you kind of limited a little bit with the format, but there's other things you can do uh, in terms of engaging people. And, and the benefit of it is that you can have 
uh, people rocking up to the class who I would not normally get to see with a physical workshop in Treadwells. So we've had like people from uh, Australia, Canada, the US, uh, Jordan, um, various places in Europe. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been great. It's been really good. And then I do bits of kind of online mentoring for people, uh, just kind of one to one stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm just in the process of uh, producing more kind of online courses, both my own material and uh, also in collaboration with a couple of other organizations. So, yeah, busy time, busy time. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's it's nice to find the, the little corners that uh, are, are blooming in the uh, during the covid <laughs> strangely um so you're one of the big faces of chaos magic and i get made fun of all the time for liking chaos magic can you explain to my friends why they're wrong why why, well, why they're wrong for thinking it's it's well it depends what they think about it i guess well i think i think usually what i get is like like ugh, like scoffs i get scoffs and kind of you know giggles about it uh and jokes about uh wanting to evoke spock you know yeah, I mean, you know, we have to look, I think, at the historical context of chaos magic. So chaos magic um, evolves uh, in Europe primarily in the latter part of the 20th century. It's influenced by discordianism. It's influenced by a kind of punk aesthetic, you know, DIY culture. Why sit around waiting for a guru to turn up when we've all got access to lots of information, lots of techniques? Uh, why not try it? Well, actually try something. You know, magic is a is a practice. It's experiential. So I think there's a great kind of emphasis on curse magic with uh, in terms of like doing stuff. You know, if you're going to be engaged in this uh, process of exploring, you know, the self, spirituality, magic, whatever that means for you, then you've got to actually, you know, in, uh, really do the practice, do the work. Um, chaos magic, I think, sometimes unfairly gets uh, imagined as being quite a kind of superficial uh, approach to these things. Um, and I have to say, in, from my experience, I know lots of chaos magicians who are able to move through different paradigms, different styles, different beliefs. But many of them have got, like me, kind of particular lineages or particular strands of work, which are their favourite kind of style. Um, I think the interesting thing about chaos magic, or one of the interesting things for me, is that it comes down to the... Um, the organizational sort of structures and the, the the kind of style of work. So in the Illuminates of Thanateros, in, in the, you know, the, the Chaos Magic network that I'm part of, part of the deal there is that people get to bring ritual practices into the space. So we've been doing lots of work online, of course, recently. So we have online temple meetings where people bring a practice and it's kind of a bring and share, skill share kind of model. So although you might have people who have an overall responsibility for like managing the Zoom call or managing the space or, or whatever, um, the idea is that everyone is empowered to be, potentially, if they want to, lead a session, lead a practice. People are, of course, welcome to sit those practices out if they don't feel kind of congruent with, with the style of practice or the, the aim, the intentions that might be behind that. So I think that what it's really good at, Chaos Magic, is a kind of... Um, an empowerment for people to kind of take control of the, the magical process for themselves. Um, like anything, you know, you can kind of parody it and, and joke about it, and that's cool. It, it's, it's kind of, in a way, um, chaos magic has gone way beyond the, the confines of the, the IoT, the, the Illuminates of Thanateros, and it's now just a kind of cultural thing. You know, there's huge groups on Facebook and Discord and various other spaces. 
And I think the interesting thing about it is that there's um, uh, a good kind of challenging of, of, of uh, assumed positions of hierarchy or exceptional knowledge. There's also a real desire to explore and experiment. And that includes using contemporary cultural references. You know, like if we talk about Spider-Man, right, you and I both immediately have a picture of how this character looks, what they, be, you know, what their special powers are, what their weaknesses are, what their abilities yeah. are, and so on. Whereas if I pick something from some ancient, obscure pantheon, I might have to do like a bunch more explanation to talk about, you know, the practice that we're going to do or whatever. So using common cultural reference points is really helpful. Um, we have these imaginal structures in our minds and chaos magic kind of goes, well, look, let's let's utilize those. I guess the other two things about it are that there's this emphasis on belief and an emphasis on uh, changing awareness. So you have whatever the ritual is. Let's imagine that I come to a, a session and I say, oh, I've been doing some work with the runes. I'm going to bring some rune practice. I'm going to bring some Galder singing runes singing practice and maybe some starter standing in the rune postures to do whatever my intention happens to be. So I bring that process uh, to people and, and with a, uh, a skilled group of magicians, they can kind of go into that mind state. Maybe they're familiar with some of the iconography or the, 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 the way that, say, the Futhark works and the, the, the way those processes unfold. So it's about kind of entering a, a belief envelope, a paradigm and kind of working within that. And then within that belief envelope, within the paradigm, the question then becomes, well, what's our method of changing awareness? So in that instance, it would be singing. So which changes breath and changes attention. It might be physical movement, standing in the position of the runes. And then when we look at other kind of magical cultures, we can kind of pick them apart a bit. We can deconstruct them and say, OK, so what's the belief envelope? What's the, the symbols and the signifiers that are used within the system? And what are the ways of changing awareness that are used to uh, fuel uh, the practice? So for me, chaos magic is just a really, it's, just a, uh, it's, a, it's a historical term and it's a term that refers to this idea of like uh, stripping back uh, elements and structure in order to understand the way that uh, a magical process might work, the kind of the underlying um, mechanisms by which it functions and being very happy to engage in a range of different belief systems, including ones that are drawn from contemporary culture. Uh, that's it, basically. Um, and then, of course, there's loads of different styles. You know, you've got the chaos magic of people like Pete Carroll. He's very influenced by like science and mathematics. And that's his kind of shtick. That's what he digs. And then you've got other people um, who have a much more kind of uh, fluid approach to some of this stuff. So if you take writers you know, from a little while ago, like Jan Fries or more contemporary people like Gordon White, they've got their style that they bring to the party. It's a very kind of open uh, environment, I think. And certainly the IOT, certainly the kind of Chaos Magic crew that I hang out with, what we do is it's like a laboratory. It's like you bring this thing, this practice, you try it out, you see if it works, you look at the logistical uh, effects, uh, people give feedback, um, and it's a really good way of uh, experimenting and exploring in order to understand, you know, how magic works and, and how we might use uh, the imagination and uh, changes of awareness to um, do whatever it is we're, we're up to doing. So if I'm if I'm following you right, you're saying that uh, chaos magicians don't have a core set of beliefs. It's more of um, 
more of like a worldview or an attitude or an a, approach to figuring out what magic is? Yeah, I guess I guess in some respects it's like a, it's a, a a technique or an approach um, to something. So you know, I, in common with probably pretty much everyone on the planet, have things that I consider pretty much true or not true, and my values and beliefs and ethics and so on. But I think there's also uh, an emphasis on the flexibility and fluidity of those things, a recognition of the cultural uh, location of a lot of kind of beliefs and ideas, and um, a kind of desire to try and um, try and sort of step back from whatever's happening and see it in a number of different ways. So, for example, in a ritual, uh, generally speaking, within within the ritual kind of environment, let's say we're invoking a deity of some description. Within the ritual environment, we might enter a belief system where we're going to do an invocation to, uh, I don't know, Thoth, yeah, Tahuti, Egyptian god of writing and magic. Fantastic. So we enter that belief system and in the ritual, we uh, interact with the spirit, with Thoth, what, through whatever kind of mechanism that's being used. Um, and we we kind of go, well, OK, for the purposes of the practice, Thoth is perhaps, an, uh, in this instance, an external force perhaps in a different dimension perhaps it's an archetypal energy but it's a real thing that we choose to give a face and a persona to outside of the ritual we might think about this in psychological terms we might think about this in some kind of you know if you're, if you're pete carroll you might be interested in some kind of quantum stochastic way of understanding what's going on so you have these different uh views of the of the experience and and, and often that means kind of holding on quite lightly to to beliefs so not um, trying to remain fluid and flexible as far as is is is, is reasonable and possible, uh, because certainly if you think of it in terms of say Taoism, that idea of like remaining sort of supple and pliant like a reed, that's kind of where you want to be, to be able to change awareness through a number of different states from very still point meditative quiet. Um, catabolic internal kind of processes through to being just as comfortable uh what one might aspire to be just as comfortable within something like possession states or extreme forms of gnosis uh you know through you know dancing drumming sex all those kind of much more anabolic and and, and kind of active styles of uh of, of, of trance induction or of altering consciousness so it's about fluidity um and recognizing i guess one of the things is that the universe appears to consist of like fixed objects, but in fact, everything is a flow process. And so to try and kind of be like that with our own beliefs and attitudes to the world, the phenomena that we encounter, and, and often holding quite lightly onto those things. Hence the reason that, that, you know, a classic chaos magic way of banishing, ending your ritual is to laugh, to laugh at how crazy it is like a bunch of people just put on black robes and started shouting at things that are not apparently <laughs> visible you know, in the triangle or whatever they're doing. So you kind of laugh to, to break set, uh, to, to go and, you know, uh, let that go, go into whatever the next phase is going to be. And also to kind of get this uh, humour, which comes through in a lot of the Discordian material within the chaos kind of tradition. You see that in people like Phil Hines' work and, and various other people. So there's a, um, there's a, a lightheartedness or a, a, a gentleness for me in this as well as 
actually for many people the depth of practice like i know chaos magicians you know gold medal winning um, martial arts people and other people who are you know uh really fantastic in various scientific fields and so on so it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to be this kind of superficial skirting over the surface just picking up whatever the next new thing is but it does mean that you try and aspire to a kind of a flexibility and a fluidity with the the kind of way that you approach magic. Mm. What's weird about that to me is, um, well, it sounds almost like it's a real uh, individual pursuit at that at that spot. But there's groups, right? Like you're a part of the IOT. Um, can you kind of explain, like, what is the IOT and how does that work out with this sort of idea? Like, how does group work uh, play into it? when you're dealing with so many different you know belief systems <laughs> but i think i think i think it, you can you can imagine it like uh you know it, well, what it actually is is it's a peer support network so you've got like a bunch of individual magicians they're doing their thing they're doing their practice they're part of the iot network and in if they're part of that network it means that they can come into this shared space either virtual or physical and they can bring a practice and they can share that with other people the other people that have gone through a training program, which ensures that they know like all the, the, the kind of fundamental skills of being able to kind of, you know, meditate, focus the, the mind, um, be in touch with their own bodies. Uh, they, they're familiar with at least the sort of the, the basic sort of language of the of kind of magical culture. So you have a situation where it's rather like a, if a group of therapists, imagine that you, you know, you've got this group of therapists, transpersonal therapists, let's say. They do their own therapeutic work, yeah. So they're working with clients. They're they're doing their own study. They're doing their own uh, personal practice, and then periodically they meet together to share what they've learned. And one person stands up and says, "Oh, I'm going to do a presentation about some aspect of transpersonal psychology which I've encountered with the people I'm working with." Blah blah blah. They do their presentation, or they do like a maybe it's a workshop where people get to be involved in something, and everyone says, "Okay, that was great, fantastic." Maybe there's a bit of feedback. And then the next person gets their turn to do a, like a bring and share from from their perspective. And then, of course, people gather together in more um, kind of coven or lodge style groups. So I've got people who are physically you know, nearby where to where I live. And when there's not a pandemic in the air, we gather yeah. together and we, we, we essentially often uh, will replicate that same model. Sometimes because we're collaborating more closely, we'll be working as two or three of us, like building a whole ritual structure. So it's not necessarily just the individual who brings that work. It might be a, a collaboration of several magicians. So I'm part of an, another kind of online group, which is a, a part of the IOT, where we've got this international group of magicians all coming together um, to work on particular kind of projects. And some of those people are working as paired teams or with other kind of relationships in the mix. So it's... um. It's a good way for individuals to gather together to share group practice. And that's how come, I guess, the system has persisted or the structure has persisted from the kind of you know, late 1970s, 1980s, like through to now. Um, it's an international network. There are people all over the place. And, you know, when, like I say, there's not a pandemic, we have various physical meetings, including meetings in you know, North America, South America, various places in Europe, and then usually a world meeting um, where as many people who are able to come to that one come together. And of course, there is shared community. There's shared like tribal identity, just like you get with any gang of people. Yeah. 
and there's shared language, you know, there's terminology that people are familiar with and everyone knows each other. They're friends. It's a community. of It's a, it's a Sangha, like the Buddhist idea of a community of practice. That's the deal. Do you ever bump into, uh, like, it just seems like it would be hard to have everybody meet up at the same time with the same desires and ideas, you know? Um, not so much because, you know, interestingly, uh, uh, you find with groups of magicians, groups of kind of occultists generally, that many people have the same uh, interests, the same concerns, um, similar things that they want to work on uh, as individuals and, and also perhaps acts of magic that they want to do kind of collaboratively in the world. Um, the world is in dire need, perhaps one might suggest, of some good kind of magical activity of one form or another. And so whether or not that, that, that finds its way into some kind of meme bombing process or whether or not that's related to some kind of uh, <laughs> political, social justice, ecological kind of action. You know, most of these people have uh, uh, kind of politics and ideas where I, uh, they'll bring a practice, they'll bring a, a suggestion for what they want to do. And the vast majority of the time I kind of go, yeah, OK, that sounds good. I'm, I'm, I'm in for that one. That sounds brilliant. Um, and then people who are working more directly uh, with each other like a few years ago, me and um, this guy, Steve D, we did a, a whole like two year program of working, sort of blending together kind of chaos magic practice and witchcraft. And eventually it turned into a book, Chaos Craft. And uh, the idea of that was to like look at the relationship between the eight colors of magic. A similar kind of thing. We were building these rituals for each of the eight seasonal celebrations, but also kind of with the vibe of the colour of magic that was um, symbolically associated with each of those festivals. Yeah, And that was a two year process that we went through. And there was ritual objects that were manufactured. Um, there was a, a community of uh, between maybe like eight and 15 people who would gather for each of those uh, festivals. And again, uh, a culture emerges. Uh, we, you, know, you get any group of people together for, for a period of time, a group of friends. A group of friends have got like special language they use, signs and signifiers that mean stuff to them. Uh, and sometimes those things become global. You know, such somewhere down the line, there's a group of youth who came up with 420 and now it's like a global phenomenon. Do you know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, it's just the way the way hominids work. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, speaking of 420, man, <laughs> you've been getting really into uh, the the psychedelic stuff, right? Lately, what's your is, your is this your most recent book, the Getting Higher? Uh, no, I think there's I think embarrassingly there's two after that. I think there's really um, yeah, I think there's a book called Walking Backwards. The uh, embarrassingly for me, my bad. Psycho, yeah, the uh, the art of um, psychedelic psychogeography, which is just like a slim, like sort of art kind of volume. That I did with my friend Greg, Greg Humphreys. And there's another collection of essays that I did uh, called The Fool in the Mirror uh, that came out, I don't know, man, like last year, year before. Anyway, mm. but Getting High was quite a big deal for me because that was a book that took, took it was a kind of a lot of time brewing up the idea for the book. You know, like I knew kind of vaguely what I wanted to produce. I wanted to produce a really accessible way for people to bring the kind of practices that I'd encountered in ritual, both with um, sort of Western esoteric magical ritual, chaos magic, that kind of thing, and also within uh, North and South American and Indian, um, Asian kind of um, 
magical cultures. And I wanted to bring what I knew to a bunch of people who were buying stuff on the dark web. And <laughs> in my, this is in my imagination and say, look, like, if you've got this stuff, guy, you know, yes, we know like all the health and safety and there's like a bit of that in there, but there's a lot of that stuff around. It was more to do with like, if you have the magic medicine, yes, of course, you can just like, uh, you know, take your psilocybin and watch Rick and Morty. That's a thing. But there may be stuff that you can do that will get you'll get much more out of the experience. And it doesn't have to be like full on ritual with like, you know, some dude with a hat with feathers in it and stuff. And, you know, people using rattles. It's more about helping people recognize that ritualizing behavior has lots of benefits in um, to hold space, to direct things. Um, and it's actually what humans do anyway, you know. When, when we lose a person that we love, we take plant sex organs and we place them on their grave. And that's what we do as humans. Mm. You know, we lay flowers and we, we pre-pandemic times, we shake hands. These are all like ritual behaviors, like humans naturally do this stuff. And for many people, if they don't come from a kind of, if they don't have a, a religious context that allows them to, uh, to, to work with psychedelics, and most people don't, then it's a question of saying, OK, so what technologies have we got from different traditions and different um, styles? What can we learn from contemporary research um, and how can we use these things well? So I come to the psychedelic field very much as as an occultist. You know, I'm interested in ritual uh, processes um, and imaginal magical processes primarily. But then I found myself you know, doing stuff like being a. Uh, a participant in a licensed psilocybin trial in London, working with, um, so I sit on the board of a like a, a peer-reviewed academic journal about psychedelics. Um, and it's, I guess, really, certainly for the last kind of 20 years, it's been something that I've been really, yeah, very, very kind of strongly engaged with. Yeah, I've been lucky. I've also had opportunities to go and hang out with various um, uh, medicine carriers, shaman, for want of better terms, you know, and, and learn from those dudes. So as far as I'm able to respectfully represent their work and, and give them respect and, and, and all of that kind of stuff, the idea of getting higher was just to present it and present these ideas in a really accessible, like relatively short format so that people who had the medicine but didn't necessarily have a lineage like me, you know, I don't have, a, you know, like I'm a white working class dude, grew up like near London, whatever, didn't have, you know, a, a, an ancient wizened shaman to show me how to do these things. So I've had to learn from other people and just pick the things that I found helpful uh, and and brew those together in this uh, cauldron and, and, and serve it up in the form of a book. There we go. You know, hopefully this is helpful. Well, I also feel like... Um... And this may be different now. I think times are changing, but in the past, uh, mixing drugs with magic was frowned upon heavily. I mean, you know me. I'm a huge pothead, and I love eating mushrooms and stuff. And I've always had people frown about that, and especially when I say that I mix it with magic, and they just they don't like that. It makes people really uncomfortable. So I thought that was it's really interesting to see you uh take the complete opposite stance on that it seems i mean i you know i would say this wouldn't i but i think that they're really wrong i think they're really wrong for historical reasons as well as anything else because um there are lots and lots and lots of examples in the esoteric tradition of the use of psychoactives in one form or another 
there's Eliphas Levi doing his famous invocations to visible appearance with, um, you know, with Lytton. Now, the dude describes the ritual. What he what he doesn't describe in any detail um, in some of the some of the uh, write ups that he produced was what goes on what goes in the incense. Yeah, what's in that incense? <laughs> if you look at the history of magic, you see that what's in the incense or what's in the uh, special draft of wine that you take before you go to the ceremony, there will be psychoactives. Yeah, often they'll be part of the things like the Solanaceae family, so the Solanaceous plants, you know, Datura, Henbane, like dodgy stuff. Cannabis right. massively used, and if people if people don't think that the magical tradition has any links with cannabis. What they need to do is they need to buy a copy of a thing called Lieber 420 by Chris Bennett and they need to educate themselves because it's absolutely part of the lineage for individual people. Whether they choose to use it or not, that's cool. Of course, of course, it doesn't. It's not a necessity. But is it part historically of the Western magical tradition? Yes, it is. Um, demonstrably, historically, uh, uh, it's part of that story. A lot of the anti-drug thing happens in various waves. So it happens with the work of, say, Dion Fortune. If you read Dion Fortune, she basically says drugs are bad um, in a sort of South Park voice in my head. But that's what she says. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and you find that, you know, now the 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 order um, that she founded, the Servants of the Light, if you go to their web page, it, it says, you know, don't use drugs when you take magic or you do magic, rather. Um, so. I understand that position, but the position is really historically contingent. It's contingent on um, a group of people who doing something that was pretty weird anyway, like dressing up in funny robes and calling on strange spirits in the 20th century, trying to distance themselves from some styles of magic which did take drugs, notably, of course, the bad boy Alistair Crowley. But if you but if you look at the Golden Dawn, the Golden Dawn used mescaline. The Golden Dawn used cannabis. The Golden Dawn used many, many substances that change awareness. The very first trip report that we have uh, is the, arguably is the one by Havelock Ellis in uh, 1898. I think it was published. So Havelock Ellis, sexologist, physician, uh, sort of free thinker type dude. Uh, he took mescaline in London and he wrote a report called Mescal, A New Artificial Paradise. Now, in the report, he talks about a friend of his who uh, I think he identifies him as an artist who he gave mescaline to, who found it interesting, but didn't really get on with it. Now, the person he's talking about is W.B. Yeats, right, who's in The Golden Dawn. OK, so you've got like people like W.B. Yeats and you've got characters like uh E. Nesbitt of famous of children's novels, you know, the um, uh, things like the uh, the Phoenix and the Carpet, this kind of stuff. All these people are knocking around and they're using cannabis in their rituals. They're going into highly painted technicolor, what we would call psychedelic temples, designed by the amazing set designers in the Golden Dawn. People like Pamela Coleman Smith, who goes on to produce the Coleman Smith Wake deck, the iconic tarot from which basically most of them are derived. So they have these amazing rooms full of this psychedelic artwork and they go in there and they do their ritual and a significant number of them are stoned. That's a fact. <laughs> that's just a fact, right? You can value that. You can, you can say, well, that's a bad thing or that's a good thing, but it's just a fact. Yeah, Alistair Crowley, when he did his Rites of Eleusis in 1910, almost certainly dosed the audience with mescaline. 
Now that's wow. <laughs> that's debatable as to whether or not that's a good move. But Crowley arguably did the first ever uh, be in. Yeah. So the first ever artwork that was designed, public artwork that was designed to be seen while you were high, way before like the Grateful Dead and Hawkwind and Ginsberg and all these people. So Crowley is doing this work. And OK, he's the bad boy. But the lovely poet W.B. Yeats, William Butler Yeats on on mescaline. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's just the way it is. I mean, he was a great fan of uh, cannabis. Like I said, he, you know, he, he didn't find mescaline to his taste. But um, certainly for the for uh, over that period of time, the early part of the 20th century, there's a distancing by some of the kind of ceremonial magic crew away from Thalema, away from Crowley, away from, you know, all that dodgy stuff. Because people want to be respected and they want to be thought of as like good people and good people, at least in that context, don't take drugs. OK, so then we wind on to the latter part of the 20th century, post-World War Two, you get the rise of neo-paganism and neo-paganism, again, broadly speaking, at least in Britain, it isn't kind of closely connected with with drugs. That stuff starts to happen later on, particularly through American culture, with things like Castaneda and shamanism and the, the re-emergence of those ideas. But um, the the idea that drugs and magic don't go together is a little blip in 20th century history and for the vast majority of the time they do they absolutely do that's really interesting man i've, I've definitely um i've been writing as a, a cannabis reporter for the past four years now full time and one thing that i've bumped into a lot is how you a lot, especially indigenous cultures. I was writing in New Mexico, and uh, so I was meeting a lot of indigenous people, and everybody treats cannabis as a sacrament, which, I mean, I guess I don't because I'm just smoking it all day long, but <laughs> but I thought that was really interesting, uh, you know, it, that it wasn't, a th- it's not a throwaway drug to a lot of cultures. That's weird. I mean, that's it's absolutely the case, and the, the other thing about cannabis is people sometimes say oh cannabis isn't psychedelic to which my response is always well you've not taken enough then frankly because if you eat cannabis or you take it in alcohol that is Crowley's first experience of samadhi he links to the use of cannabis so um and we know that cannabis in particular has got like really deep connections with many many uh kind of different belief systems particularly as as witnessed through hinduism uh, or what we call Hinduism, that kind of cluster of ideas in the Asian subcontinent. Um, and and I guess also it depends on how we think about uh, taking something as a sacrament. So speaking to you as an indigenous person from the Americas, you know, because I guess you were born there. I don't know how it works. Yeah. But um, the way that we the way that uh, I've observed uh, quote indigenous people, people who have got a good relationship with these medicines is that um, it isn't necessarily about like only taking it under certain conditions and in a very prescribed kind of way. If you look at the way that we Choli people use use peyote, it's used like really frequently. It's used like as a as a as a as a topical medicine on skin. Um, yeah. it's these ceremonies, which from an outside observer point of view, just look like massive festivals. You know, people light fires and they eat the stuff and then they go dancing and they go and have some beers and they smoke some cigarettes and they come back to the fire and they sing another song. 
And I think the thing there is that we're used to being in a kind of this post-Protestant culture thing where you have his magic, his religion. It's the bit you do over here. It's basically a bit boring and a bit worthy. And you have to spend a lot of time like being all, you know, very sort of um, austere about it. Whereas in other cultures, you might have the same respect might be accorded to this miraculous medicine in, say, Rastaf uh, Rastafarian culture, where the herb is seen as being like this really important thing. And part of the really important thing about it is the social use of it, yeah? is the way that it bonds and brings people together and it allows people to kind of go into these altered states communally. Um, and I, I, so I think that there's, you know, there's a balance to be struck between um, showing reverence for the for the medicine and also using the medicine in a way that kind of feels right and appreciating it. That's, I guess, part of it. Yes, you know, we can... Uh, have some cannabis and carry on with what we're doing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we can also take some cannabis and we can go outside and we can smoke and we can send some of the smoke up to the sky, down to the earth, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to even be like a big deal. It doesn't have to be like a big ceremony, but it's just about appreciating this medicine, what it does for us, you know, bringing our attention there and, and doing that with authenticity and a good heart. And that's what matters, you know. It doesn't have to be like, the only ritual way of using cannabis would be to not have any cannabis for three months and then do some special purification process and then some sort of lab ritual and then finally you get to smoke a joint. I mean, you know, that it, it's kind of a bit like some of those approaches to Tantra where it's just like just making the foreplay like really long and really elaborate. It's like, <laughs> that's cool some of the time, yeah, but like part of the thing for me and part of the thing behind kind of getting higher was to say, ritualization and appreciation of altering awareness and the substances that can let us do that we can make that part of our lives yeah it doesn't have to be something that's just like there's like six days in the week and then there's the religious day it's like to try and blend the uh, or break down this boundary between the the um the so-called sacred and the, and the and the secular and i observed that a lot when i have hung out with like people in from from other cultural backgrounds than my own like sometimes the the ritual looks really kind of informal and and it does, you know it looks really easy um and sometimes the ritual will sort of just unfold in a, a in a very kind of everyday sort of sense you know i remember right. being, being in india and watching the women in the place in south india where i was staying like every morning they'd get up and they'd sweep the sweep the house and then the kind of last thing they do is they take some um, uh, some chalk and they mark um, uh, a symbol to bring good luck into the house on on the doorstep. Right. So where does the ritual begin? Does the ritual begin with the sweeping? Yeah, of course, the ritual begins with the sweeping. That's the point. Like the drawing of the chalk thing is just an element of a daily practice called cleaning your house and bringing your attention to the idea that then you invite good stuff in. So it's not like mm -hmm. it's, it's total boundary between these different zones. You know, there's magic and there's daily life and there's the things that are important and the things that are just also rans in perception. It's much more kind of whole. Uh, and for me, I think that that's 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 the way to go with these things. Man, that's really interesting. Um look, that's that's all cool and good, but I need to circle back to you being a guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> for psilocybin what happened 
so in oh man was it, was it beginning of uh last year i think it was yeah yeah that's right so um uh king's college hospital which is in uh the in the middle of london basically they have been running uh, and are continuing to run trials looking at the prospect of using psilocybin to help people who have treatment resistant depression so i was part of the first wave of that trial um as someone who doesn't have treatment resistant depression so that they could just kind of check out how the this medicine worked and they were particularly i mean obviously the loads of other background work has been done but they got they got to the point at that stage where they wanted to find out would it be possible to run a psilocybin session um and what kind of effects would they get from that they wanted to kind of like measure think people like people's openness people's cognitive flexibility back to the chaos magic thing how open are you to the prospect of change if you're depressed one of the things that's very hard to do is to imagine how it could be better so they did lots of kind of cognitive measures on us and they also wanted to find out would it be possible to run a psilocybin session with six people in the room at the same time each of them in a bed in a ward in a hospital ward and they did the session brilliantly like they changed the ward around right massively so like they put soft rugs on the floor took the light level right down those kind of little pretend led candle things you know um and vaporized smell in the in the uh in the space um each one of us had you know we had we each had an individual sitter who we'd met the day before we'd established like you know uh things like uh if, if you're worried is it okay if i put my hand on top of your hand or on your arm is that cool yes that's fine so we'd established the rapport and we'd gone through this process checking all the usual stuff you know blood pressure um i remember <laughs> i remember doing a uh, a questionnaire before the session which was uh, what's called a schizoid personality type questionnaire it's incredibly old and really badly worded thing so i remember the doctor saying to me as one of the questions he said um do you ever believe that you're in contact with beings that other people cannot see <laughs> and, and, and i said look in the context of this interview no i do not <laughs> and it was like yeah okay we have to go through this you know we, even even just even just this document was hilarious so there's a lot of kind of changes that have to happen for this this process to work in mainstream medicine but they're happening so essentially there were six of us um uh some of whom had had psilocybin and other psychedelics before one of whom i know had never had anything they'd never taken cannabis or any um other like significant psychoactive beyond probably alcohol and um yeah there we are in this room low light levels it's all lovely it's about 10 10 a.m in the morning we're given uh, a little uh paper cup with a series of small pills in it and the pills could contain one of three things they could either be uh placebo so sugar pills or they could be 10 milligrams of synthetic psilocybin or they could be 25 milligrams of synthetic psilocybin and it's a double blind test yeah so no one knows what they're going to get and and how how much is that like in like street level like what are you, what are we talking like uh, conversion all right so 25 milligrams of synthetic psilocybin is well how 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 high does that get you i guess is the question <laughs> it's a moderately high dose if it was cubensis mushrooms i would say that it is between three and a half and four grams um and if it was Liberty Caps, I would say, you know, uh, Semilanciata, the ones that grow in, in Britain, that's maybe like 50 mushrooms, 40, 50 mushrooms, something like this. 
So like significant, but not like the walls are melting. I don't know who I am. Not not a heroic dose, but pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just like moderately strong. In fact, the, the dude who was managing the session, who was brilliant, he said, we call this the active dose. So they don't use <laughs> like moderately strong. They just say it's the active dose. And it is pretty much the sweet spot. If you want to do like psychotherapy, like psychedelic psychotherapy, it's it's kind of nice because you're sort of you're really in it. But, you know, you can take yourself to the bathroom if you need to. I mean, the sitter kind of comes with you as far as the door just uh-huh. to check that you're all good. And I was very fortunate because I got, um, as far as I'm aware, 25 milligrams of psilocybin because I could have had like a really I mean, you know, I, I imagined I would do some writing, get some rest if I got the placebo, but I would have been disappointed. Fortunately, I didn't get the placebo. So I had the <laughs> experience of like lying there in this hospital bed. You know, uh, I, I brought a few objects. In fact, I brought a, a magical object. I brought um, uh, a spirit that me and a bunch of other chaos magicians have been working with, which is a, a physical sculpture, um, which is a, a character called Izawa who's a spirit we made to help the liberation of the psychedelic gnosis for the benefit of all beings. So Izawa is like there with in the corner by my bed, this kind of weird gold mirrored sculpture thing with horns and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I had like a favourite like poncho that I had with me. And uh, yeah, off we go, you know. So put on the eye shades, put on the, uh, the headphones, a um, little bit of light classical music, and then... I start to think, ah, yeah, this is okay. So this is good. This is, this is, this is something, there's something here. And within like another five minutes, it's like, yes, I've lucked out. This is like the proper dose. This is the, the active dose. And then I spent like, yeah, you know, the usual thing, three, four hours, uh, mostly lying down, just going into the vision, going through my own experience. Um, I remember at one stage, going to the bathroom and the the, the dude who was uh, sitting for me, a uh, really nice guy, you know, we sort of walked down to the bathroom, bathroom along a corridor, which is all lit with these tiny little tea lights. And I could just see beyond the door, I could see out into the, the car park. So it's like police cars and like ambulances and like people, central London, like running around doing all that. Um, and so, you know, went to the bathroom, did my stuff, gazed at myself briefly in the mirror, came out, and I said to the guy who's sitting for me, I said, it's about 3 a.m. in this club. And he laughed like he knew, like these are people. Yeah. And these are people working in psychedelic therapy like they I, I couldn't fault it. Like, Bless them. They came to me afterwards and they said, like, <laughs> we've done better. And I was going like nothing. There's nothing you could have done better. It was a brilliantly held session. I, I remember going back into the room. And as I came back into the room, there's all these beds with people like sitting really kind of quiet, the sitters and the people in the beds like doing their thing, you know, some of whom are clearly bored because they've got the placebo, some of whom are clearly not because they've got something else. <laughs> uh, and I just found myself as I came back in, I just found myself like putting my hands together and bowing because it was it was a ceremony. Yeah, it was a ceremony, you know, and the people running the show, um, you know, without uh, getting too much into the details, uh, they knew the score, as we say over here. Yeah, they mm. knew the territory and um, they were they were very, very, very good, very good. Um, and so the trajectory for the work is that within a few years, um, like a, a, a one hand handful of years, we should have psilocybin uh, therapy to help people with treatment resistant depression available on the National Health Service, which basically means it's free at the point of provision. Wow. So you 
So you've gone through CBT and you've gone through MBSR and you've gone through all these acronyms of therapy and you've had some, um, you know, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. It hasn't worked. Okay, so we bring out the big guns in the form of a little mushroom and that's what we do. And so the protocol will probably be something like like my friend Ben Sesser has been working a lot with MDMA um, uh, with people with alcoholism. So the, the protocol is established now. It's like you have several sessions, you get to know the people, you build the rapport, you figure out what the issues are. You go through the session and like in the session, the people don't they don't instruct you to do anything. They don't sort of, you know, if you're there having a blissful time, they won't come, you know, pull, pull the eye shades back and say, what? think about your depression. Think about what, how, how are you going to get put through this? It's like, no. <laughs> do its work let the person do their work and then afterwards you've got all the integration talking about it figuring out you know um the the main thing and and this is a kind of a theory that i've got about psychedelic therapy which is that the main thing is that people come out with like a new metaphor they come out with a new language to talk about like i don't know what horrible abuse things happened to them or their depression or their trauma and so um what they find is that they find that they have a new way of speaking about whatever the thing was and a new way of kind of sitting with yeah a new way of coming to like an accommodation with whatever the um whatever the problem has been and that discovery of the new metaphor or, or however it works you know the discovery of of healing is um it's incredibly good it's incredibly reliable it's like way beyond any of the other interventions that we had in medicine it's uh and that's not to say that you know serotonin reuptake inhibitors those kind of um, antidepressants they're not useful for some people some of the time because they clearly are but they're massively overprescribed. they're maintenance rather than cure um and if you look at the figures for things like mdma psychotherapy in the us with, with maps are doing the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies they've got now longitudinal data so data from people who've gone through the program like four years ago and 67 percent if i remember the figure correctly which i'm pretty sure i do 67 percent of people four years later who've come into an mdma psychedelic therapy program with treatment resistant post-traumatic stress disorder right so again they've tried everything 67 percent of those people four years later don't meet the diagnostic criteria for ptsd at all right at all wow. it's like it's a no-brainer you know Very impressive like it, it's that's it's an incredibly incredibly successful way of dealing with addictions trauma dealing with creative blocks um you know there's been some really interesting research a few years back in britain looking at could you use lsd to help people problem solve and problem solving with like engineers mathematicians scientists and the short answer is yes, you can. You know, like we know uh, from anecdotal evidence, this is the case. The RNA polymerized reaction, the reaction that's used amongst other things to create, um, to to uh, as part of the testing for viruses, the RNA polymerized reaction was discovered by a dude who claims to have got his insights from acid. So, and that's just like the anecdotal stuff. And now we're getting this big wave of clinical data from now in the early 21st century and all of it points towards the fact that for many people not everyone but for many people these medicines curated in the right space so held in what i would describe as the right kind of ritual container 
can help heal people. What's not to like about this? I mean, Nixon's war on drugs was just about a war on the black power movement, the Vietnam anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, all of that kind of stuff. You know, it wasn't anything to do with the danger of the drugs. Um, The substances themselves, we know. Tremendously safe, safer than caffeine, safer than alcohol, safer than tobacco by a long way. So the fact that um, to that stage is just brilliant. Psilocybin in particular, I know, uh, with the, the new metaphor that you're talking about, it's they, it, it's something about the neural pathways being reset, which is revolutionary, really. That's not something that uh, anything else can do, you know, and they and it's still not totally understood. But I think that's kind of why these doors are opening now and we're starting to see uh, more research being allowed for especially psilocybin in particular. You know, it's, it's interesting how quickly, how quickly the, the narrative on that has switched. Um, there have been people sort of working away in the background, trying to keep, keep the, you know, the flame of this sort of research uh, alive over the years, which has been great um, in various places uh, over the world in, across the world. But we, the contemporary material that's coming out is like, there's a really strong, absolutely solid scientific case for bringing these medicines into into wider use uh, and allowing clinicians to use them. I mean, the hilarious thing is that you can walk out on the street, go and buy MDMA. But if you're a clinician like Ben Sessa, a doctor, you can't give this even in a kind of because it's it's, a you know, class A schedule one substance, you know, and there's like a whole raft of stuff behind that. Up, up until relatively recently. I was about to say, it seems like that's definitely turned around, like, completely within the last year, just in the last year alone. Uh, even here in the States, we, it's it's the same way. Everything's, the doors have just completely fly, are flying open. I think they've started doing trials with veterans, which is, you know, wild. That's completely wild. Um, I'm, speaking of that, I mean, speaking of the legality of it, can we, uh, I kind of wanted to talk about your friend, uh, Leonard Pickard. Is that how you say his name, or Picard? Like the captain, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, can you tell me his story? What happened? Uh, that That's good news, right? It is good news. It is good news. So, um, uh, Leonard is a, is a fascinating guy. Uh, I've only got to know him since he was in prison. So he's recently, a matter of a few days back, been released from a maximum security federal prison in the Arizona desert. And his crime... Uh, was that uh, allegedly he was involved in a ring uh, producing LSD. He was busted in, I think it was like 1999, thereabouts, uh, with a thing called the the Kansas Missile Silo Bust, which you you can read about all over the internet. Um, This is a man who had, uh, you know, he was not involved in any kind of like violent crime. um, And whatever we might think about, LSD manufacturer. He certainly wasn't doing it for the money because uh, he was uh, already had like a professional position. He was doing it rightly or wrongly because he believed um, uh, that this medicine, that the LSD uh, is a powerful agent for social and cultural change. Right. Uh, He was then sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Right. So this dude who's like in his, he was in his, uh, he was like 54, mid 50, something like this, has just got out 20 years later, 
you know, it's very much it, it reminds me of another earlier case of a guy called Timothy Tyler, who was a deadhead who was imprisoned for dealing acid. Uh, and he was put away again for, I think, a comparable kind of period of time under the three strikes and you're out law uh, uh, that existed or, uh, and um, also served a huge prison sentence for LSD. Uh, and he wasn't even like ma making the stuff. But going back to Leonard, like Leonard, I, I kind of got in touch with him because he wrote a book in uh, published in 2016 called The Rays of Paracelsus, which is a fantastic and fascinating book. It's like this massive, you know, fat 700 page uh, long uh, story about six uh, underground high level LSD chemists who produce planetary scale batches of LSD because they believe that this will help transform society for the better. And they kind of have these sort of superpowers because they've been exposed to like, it's kind of, it's kind of classic, you know, comic book stuff. If they're having been exposed to vast quantities of LSD, now they have these superpowers and they do. And the book is like really poetic and really beautifully written. And I've been involved with a, a project with various people to um, create an audio version of the book. So there've been several of us reading uh, um, chapters from the book. Uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, online uh, with uh, the, the uh, psychedelic uh, salon. Uh, so Lorenzo's psychedelic salon. It's on SoundCloud and various other places. But the book is amazing. The book is really, really fascinating. And it was written uh, on paper in pencil in a, a, a room like a matter of a few feet by a few feet in a steel room in the middle of the desert. And it's amazing, partly because it's like Leonard trying to re-remember the world. Like it goes, wow. in, it's all in these different locations, you know, different bits of new, like New England and California and India and the Middle East. And it's kind of elements from his story. So there's elements that are autobiographical and elements that are, let's call it more creative. I mean, I don't know how autobiographical all of it is. Um, but we started speaking via email. Um, and occasional phone calls uh, a few years back. So, yeah, I just kind of got involved with, uh, with with that work and also with various um, magicians and practitioners of various descriptions, uh, setting intentions that perhaps um, we could change the way psychedelics uh, are understood and that people like Leonard could be liberated from prison. I mean, I don't know quite how it is in the States now, but it was the case that there were still people serving life imprisonment in the US for, for pot related uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, OK, so there's the whole pot lifers thing and there's the can do foundation about clemency. Like, you know, let's wheel. Let's take this back a bit. So you're telling me that in a culture that's increasingly decriminalizing cannabis, there are still people and there are some heart rending stories. People who found themselves uh, um, at the sharp end of the conspiracy legislation in the US, which also seems to be completely crazed as far as I can tell. Like you can get off the charges if you can basically uh, rat on somebody else and then eventually it gets to the person who can't rat on anyone else and they serve like the full term it's like how how barbaric how utterly barbaric is that you know uh, so the liberation of psychedelic prisoners the liberation of prisoners of the drug war particularly those kind of like non-violent offenders for me that's something that that you know, however you're involved in it, whether it's just like writing to an individual person to just like tell them what's going on in the outside world, give them a bit of support, whether it's writing to your congressman or whoever, you know, whatever mechanism you've got available. Like we've got to do this as well, you know, 
the war on drugs has been brutal, pointless, massively expensive and caused huge amounts of human suffering. And as culture changes and frankly, culture is changing, partly because like all the old dudes are dying. Now, all the people who had can totally absorb that like Nixon, you smoke, you know, you inject one marijuana and you'll go crazed. And, you know, and 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 that's how it will be like all that years is slowly being attenuated, dropping out of culture. And so as we find ourselves in this different story with people using psychedelics, talking about them, talking about therapy. Yeah, I just for me, I just am mindful of the fact that there are legal issues and there are people still very much behind bars over this. So seeing Leonard released, particularly because this guy, this guy was the one who who first alerted the US government to fentanyl. He's one of the first people doing to alert formally to go to, you know, whoever it was in the administration, the the, um, uh, and and the DEA or whoever it would have been and say, there's this thing going to happen. And some of this is kind of in book where, okay, so the Soviet Union breaks down, that changes. There's a whole bunch of chemists. What are they going to make? They're going to make these new these new opiates because they're relatively easy to produce. They're very. Uh, very, very strong, so you don't have to physically make much of the material to make a good dollar. Leonard warned the government about this and continued to do so while he was in jail, right? So, like, give the man a break. He's done two decades in the desert without having seen a tree. You know, like, I, really, really. And and he he's, he's, he's not alone. I mean, there are other people like Timothy Tyler, who've been released, but there are many others who, who, who should be. Well, how did he get released? What happened? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so he put in an application under, I think there was a change of law in the US, I think it was in 2018, the First Steps Act, I think it's called, um, which was looking... Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, as, as I understand it, it's about people who've like served substantial sentences for non-violent drug-related crime. I think kind of although the uh the judgment which i've you know i've I read the submissions and i read the judgment and so on um it doesn't mention covid19 but i think that there's also an element of like this dude's 74 he's living in a box in the desert like it let's get him out because it's it, you know it's not it's not good it's 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 a risk for a variety of, of reasons and also i think because there have been lots of people who'd supported him so Ben Sesso, who I mentioned earlier on doing the MDMA psychotherapy, wrote a beautiful letter in support of Leonard's, um, uh, quote, early release. Uh, Julie Holland, who, who works with MAPS, you know, also writes some stuff. So a whole bunch of people like came together to put put this pressure on. And fortunately, you know, uh, the magical spirit of Izawa be praised. They let him go. They put him on a bus and sent him home. That is such, that's such amazing news, man. That's so crazy. That's, but, you know, honestly, um, like, I was actually going to point that specific law out because that was a Trump-backed, that was White House-backed, that legislation, which is, it's amazing. I was recently um, watching a clip from, what is the group called? Oh, Evangelicals for Trump. Evangelicals for Trump. And there's, um, I don't know if you know about this, but there is an official like spiritual i guess like advisor on in in the in the white house and it's this lady who's like i don't know she's crazy but <laughs> she she's speaking to this group of evangelicals 
and there it's a rally for Trump. And she starts talking about Biden and how he's been locking people up for drugs for years over drugs, just drugs over marijuana. Can you believe it? And everybody's cheering and clapping. And I was like, what the fuck kind of weird world am I in now? Where, <laughs> where the evangelicals have switched sides and are, and are now criticizing the drug war. It's over. You know what I'm saying? That stuff is over. We're just kind of waiting for it to, to pan out. And, and that's, I think, where you get into going back to almost the chaos magic thing. It's like what we consider to be the lines that are drawn in the sand are in sand and can be erased and moved. You know, so I can imagine. Uh, is this the same lady who's kind of advising on whether or not you have sex with demons or something? Is that the same person? in the? In the <laughs> Sounds in like the, it. Could well be. Anyway. <laughs> You have that thing where you kind of rock up and say, look, it says in Genesis that, you know, you've got all these seed bearing blah, 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 and you go, oh, well, fantastic. It's about like presenting information in the way that makes sense from the point of view of that belief system. And of course, you can then once you've done that, you can start to kind of modify things and bring things in other directions, maybe even introduce ideas that might be considered more liberal, but are framed in a way that's intelligible to that community. So when MAPS started working with MDMA, psychotherapy they just they decided that they would work with the military so they could have worked with firefighters i mean they have subsequently they could have worked with firefighters they could have worked with like medics uh you know people who support those who've been uh, through rape crisis experiences but what they chose was the military because their reasoning was and rick doblin's pretty clear about this he said look in america it's a massively militarized country there's this whole patriot thing if we can work with the military and there's a there's a lovely document, I think, where he says something like the military have got the most guns. That's why we should work with them. You know, <laughs> and you can see it like even from a, a genuinely Buddhist, compassionate point of view. This is where the most trauma is, where the where war is waged. If you can work in that setting, then, yeah, you can work back to depressed IT workers. That's fine. But if you start with the depressed IT workers, it's not going to work in the cultural setting in which we find ourselves in the United States. Yeah. So you go into the heart of the beast and you work there. You know, you, it's like the shadow work. You know, it's all you go to where the, the darkness is, where the treasure lies. Uh, that's where you need to head. That's where you need to head. You need to head into this stuff and then find ways of like making that transformation possible. So we get to a situation where the evangelicals of Trump are going, this drug war is crazy. It's like, yeah. It is. I agree. You're totally wrong. There's many other things that we may have disagreements about, but this particular issue, amen. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's very, it's just, man, the world's weird. Um, <laughs> Julian, I think I've got you on here long enough. I'm about to turn into a pumpkin. Uh, what What have you been working on recently? Uh, you, uh, you've you got the blog of Baphomet is still going, right? Still yeah, running but... strong. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and now you've got this YouTube show called My Magical Thing. I've been watching that. That's a really fun one. Uh, can we can we talk about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so my my professional work is I work in museums and galleries, and I do what mm. what they call engagement work. So I kind of uh, work to help people be curious about all the objects and art that's in these collections and how they might kind of connect with it. Because otherwise, it's just like a bunch of boring old stuff in a box. Yeah, and and. So I'm very interested in objects. I'm very interested in like the, the way an object is the, the anchor for a story. So when the lockdown kind of came, I was thinking, oh, you know, I, I quite fancy like some crazed side project. What can I do? Um, 
And I thought, well, I'll basically Skype my friends and people that I would I would like to speak with. And I'd ask them to show them me a magical thing that they've got uh, and to tell me the story of it. And again, it's it's that that process of um, if you ask someone directly. So can you tell me about your practice? And you go, oh, well, I do yoga and Tai Chi and meditate. And then every six weeks I do a ceremonial blah, blah, blah. Very boring. But if you say, oh, so that magical thing you've got on the wall back there. Tell me about that one. And that reveals a lot more and you get a lot more out of it, particularly in like, you know, six, 10 minutes, whatever. Um, so hopefully it's, you know, fun and frivolous and entertaining. But man, there's some deep stuff in there, like Lon Milo Duquette's story about his wand, which I'd read previously. I was so pleased that he told the story on, on camera. Um, like it's there's so much teaching in that. There's so much teaching in that. Or, or like Lionel Snell's drum or um, uh, Caroline Tully's like a, a tree goddess figurine that she's got. Like there's loads of really nice stuff that's kind of revealed from that process. And um, yeah, so I'm going to keep that one going for a little while. And at the moment I'm doing I'm, I'm designing a uh, psychedelic journey work course specifically for psilocybin uh, with these dudes called the Fungi Academy uh, who, who are based in Guatemala. So somewhat amusingly, they've come to the the um, uh, the, the 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 quotes shaman from uh, the home counties in England, uh, all the way from Guatemala, uh, got in touch and kind of went, oh, can you do this thing? It's like, yeah, I'm very happy to help. So I've been filming a whole series of kind of lessons for that, writing a bunch of materials for that. Yeah. And then just carrying on with the online uh, work, looking forward eventually to get to a situation where I can meet together with all my friends and we can. Uh, just hang out and do some magic and do some some uh, some shrooms in person. That's 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 me. Nice. Yeah. What about uh, any any books? It sounds like I already missed a couple. <laughs> but are there any new ones on the way? So, uh, no, I I was talking to a friend about this last night and saying that the the, the annoying spirits uh, are are starting to tap me on the shoulder about a new thing. So there is something that's uh, when I get past this psychedelic journey work course, then I'm I'm gonna. Yeah, just kind of spend a little bit more time thinking about that. It's I, I suspect um, something else that uh, brings together maybe the strands of magic and psychedelics, but in a in a slightly different way than getting higher. Getting higher was deliberately designed to be like I hope really accessible for people. It's the kind of put it in your back pocket, really easy read. Um, and I'd like to do something that is I don't know, just kind of goes into the whole field in a bit more depth. Maybe looks at addresses some of those questions like is it cool to use marijuana when you're doing magic and the answer to which is yes it is and here's a brief <laughs> oh, rundown of why it is and mm. the con you know the the, the various uh, uh points of contact between the esoteric tradition and the, the the kind of psychedelic culture so probably something like that i would imagine that's going to be the next the next great plan Great man. So, uh, where's the where's the best place for people to find you right now? Is is that on the blog at Baphomet site? Baphomet is probably the easiest one, but I mean, and yeah. that's where you can sign up for all the online stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a link there to um, I've got a teachable site as well, uh, which I'm just starting to uh, populate with material as well. So if you go to the blog of Baphomet and have a look on the left hand side, there's a bunch of links. One of which is um, uh, links to uh, I think it's just. Um, uh, what is it now? Deep hyphen magic uh, at, at te dot teachable dot com, something like this. 
it's in it's in the early stages of construction, but there's a there's a magical a, a core magical skills course there, which people have been really enjoying, which is again like just lots of video lectures, lots of material. It's a good three four months worth of program, I guess, for people to kind of get into. Um, looking at like spirit work and banishing rituals, meditational practice, bodywork practice, various things. But yeah, the blog of Baphomet is probably the easiest thing to point people to at the moment. Yeah. Great, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Julian, you're, you're one of the sweetest people I've ever met. And I always like talking to you. I always love speaking to you. So hopefully, hopefully you'll come on again and I can talk your ear off again. Maybe next time Ken will stick around. Josh, you're really, really welcome. Lovely to speak with you. Cheers, man.